What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Monkey Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Perez, along with Anthony Florentino. Today is episode 30 featuring Emily Perrin of Perrin Wellness and Performance. She's a former Division I women's soccer player at the University of Virginia turned mindfulness and performance coach. Today's episode is brought to you by Daily Dose CBD Inc. Daily Dose CBD Inc. is a company based out of New Jersey that sells full-spectrum CBD products ranging from tinctures, bombs, and dog treats. They have a high-quality product the highest quality product that Flo and I have personally used. Full-spectrum CBD has proven to have successful results in the following areas of study. Antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, aid with anxiety and PTSD, help in breaking addiction, neuroprotection, epileptic relief, rheumatoid arthritis and chronic pain, aid with sleeping disorders, as well as anti-tumoral potential. So pick some up today at Daily Dose CBD Inc. and use promo code MONKEYMIND for 10% off your purchases. That's dailydosecbdinc.com, promo code MONKEYMIND for 10% off your purchases. Let's get into today's episode. Yeah, today we have on Emily Perrin. Um, pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to you know chat with us and do this interview. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So as always, we start with um, you know if you don't mind just giving an intro about yourself and um, you know your career and your sport and you know where you grew up, the whole timeline and what you're up to these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, my title is um, I'm a mindfulness and performance coach. Um, I guess I kind of made that up. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure there is such a thing out there, but hey, um, got to like it, it right? Um, yeah. So um, yeah, my, my background is in soccer, though. Um, so I played um, collegiately at the University of Virginia. Um, and then got straight into coaching. Um, so I spent three years as an assistant coach at the University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League. Um, and I also grew up with a dad that is a um, sports psychologist. So he's a PhD in sports psychology. He coached college basketball at the University of Virginia for 15 years, um, has spent about uh, roughly 10 years in and out of the NBA, um, scouting and doing sports psych stuff. And he's been to uh, two World Cups with the U.S. men's national team. So um, I very much grew up with um, an understanding of what um, this world was about. Um, and so when I got into the college game coaching, um, I really found that very little of what I loved um, was the X's and O's of soccer. I mean, I, I will always love the sport, um, but um, you know, where, where I really wanted to make an impact and start to work with kids was a lot of the off the field stuff. Um, and that became really apparent. Um, I, I think in the Ivy league um, it's a, it's definitely um, a, a different type of experience because of the academic rigor um, kind of twofold. I mean, I, I think since I was, I mean, a, a little kid, like, I mean, four or five years old have always just like really struggled with my own, um, just kind of journey of chronic anxiety and panic attacks. Um, and have, have had some bouts of, of really, um, 
really intense experiences um, that have really, um, you know, put me at rock bottom. Um, I've been in inpatient psychiatric care twice um, in my life. And, um, you know, I, I really know what it's like to um, be really high functioning, um, which is, this is, you know, something that I, I do a lot of research in stigma and mental health work. And so the, the common misconception is that, oh, okay, well, if you're there, if you're there in terms of anxiety and just kind of overwhelm and stress, then you're not functioning, right? Well, that's not quite true. You can be very high functioning and still have a, an intense amount of um, mental health issues. And so, um, you know, a lot of, and especially in the elite athlete society, it's very common that, hey, we, you know, you've got really high functioning athletes that are doing actually very well on and off the field, but, you know, still have a lot going on in terms of mental health and well-being. So, um, I, I think I was definitely one of those kids. Um, and yeah, when I, um, the, the second round of psychiatric care, um, which was enough to, um, almost kill me. Um, I really just kind of took a hard look at my life and said, you know, I've got to, I've got to figure this out. Um, and so, I turned to yoga and I turned to meditation and mindfulness um, and breath work um, and really dove into um, first and foremost, my own journey um, to really heal myself. Um, but about hmm, three or four months into it, I really just kind of like had this epiphany that like, holy shit, if I had just had this, had these tools, had these practices, had this knowledge, this awareness, um, as a kid, as a high school athlete, as a college athlete, as a college coach, I believe that not only would I have been a different athlete, a better athlete, I think I would have hit my full potential, but I also just would have been a freaking better human, right? I would have been happier. I would have had more joy. I would have really been able to live my life. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of had this like aha moment that was like, holy shit, this is, this is my life's mission. Um, and so, um, quit my sales job. I was working just like a generic, uh, sales job for a sports company. And it was like, just kind of like two sheets to win. All right. Peace out. Um, just kind of like dove in to get my yoga certification. Um, I did Duke's integrative health coaching program. Um, I studied with, um, a Buddhist, well, he was a former Buddhist monk. He came out of monastery to teach teachers. So people like me that want to, teach uh, mindfulness meditation. Um, but he also does stuff with the Golden State Warriors, which is really cool. Um, so I studied with him. Um, and then I'm, I'm now uh, back in grad school full time as well, um, uh, becoming what's called an LCSW, so licensed clinical social worker. Um, so really, what I do is um, I study social problems, right? Mental health is a social problem. Um, and I really do the research and, and look at what has gotten us to the social problem. So I look at trends, I look at all that stuff. Um, but then also you look at, okay, well now how do we attack it? But how do we attack it on all levels, right? So like the one-on-one, -on -one, small like team settings, but also like large scale programming, which is something I'm really interested in. So, um, you know, basically what I have created with my own personal business is kind of a, a mixed and a very holistic approach to performance enhancement, right? So, um, I really work with, um, players, uh, you know, to, to the, the root of who they are. Um, and if you get them, 
um, thinking more mindfully as a human, they're inherently going to think more mindfully as an athlete and they're going to move more mindfully as an athlete. Right. So, um, it's just this way of training the brain. Um, and so that is what I do. That is how I work with athletes, um, while being in school full time. All right. That's a lot. Let me, I have a lot of questions that just rose. Um, let's go, let's go but, for it. All right. Um, so really quickly, what you, you mentioned one thing that was, um, kind of intrigued me, but you said that mental illness is a social problem. So can yeah. you just kind of dive into that, um, specifically, you know, what exactly that means? Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at social problem, right, you're looking at a large scale event issue that affects a lot of people. That's a very, that's the most simplistic way that you could put it. Right. Okay. So think of like, all right, I'll give you some like very common examples of like social problems, right. That affect large amounts of people. Um, sex trafficking is one. Um, I mean, God, we're dealing with one of the most, <laughs> you know, the largest social problems there is racism is one, right. Oppression bias, right. All of that stuff. So I really believe that, um, mental health and the mental health stigma is a large scale social problem. And I think it is even more of an issue within this elite athlete society because of the stigma that is attached to it. And when you really start to look at the numbers of like, really like realistically of how many people are are competing at the, the, the collegiate level, but also that like early pro level. So like, if you take like all of the leagues in the United States or the, the major ones, right. But then you look at the, the actual numbers of reported mental health issues, like it's clinically significant. Okay. It's, it's, it's hovering around that, like one in four, one in five, one in three potentially. Okay. Um, and that is, I believe even like th this issue is even probably underreported because the problem with most of these and how they gather data is self-report, all right? And what we know about elite athletes is half the time they're not reporting because they don't want to report, right? Because they, they don't want people to know that they have an issue. So I really don't believe that that even scratches the surface of, of how much uh, of a problem this actually is. Um, so yeah, does that kind of help explain the, the, the issue of social problem? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, oh. I think, <laughs> go ahead, Flo. No, I've, I've always like known people uh, myself have struggled with mental illness and to have this the first time, like actually think about it as a, you know, social problem and whatnot. Like, it's just wild to think about cause I've never thought about it as the same kind of situation is racism and what you were saying because mm -hmm. of whatever reason but it's just wild to think about because now that I am it's like holy shit like yeah it so really let's is look at it. let's look at it this way okay so let's look at what's happening in our country with race okay and so what people and sadly what people are just starting to realize is that like oh well this is a system issue right like the system that our country was built on okay um, literally was designed to promote racism, right? If you think about it, all right, well, in, in my opinion, at least, um, right? This is a, this is a system, like racism is a systemic issue, okay? But what are all, like, there's a lot that leads into that, right? So let's look at mental health, okay? Let's go all the way back to, I mean, like, Greek mythology ages, middle ages, okay? Um, when you look at the research of how 
society started to handle mental health, people with what today we know as mental health issues are, how did they, how did they deal with them? They literally hunted them down, burned them at the stake, killed them, right? So th this, this issue, okay, this is why we have such an issue of talking about mental health issues, right? This did not just start, this isn't a new thing, right? This literally comes from hundreds of years of people that have issues with mental health being oppressed, being killed, being put in psychiatric facilities where they are tortured, they are beaten, right? So, I mean, what it's, it's wild when you actually think about it, okay? Because it literally, it makes so much sense that, oh, this is why people literally have an issue of just saying, I, I've, I've got anxiety or I've got depression, right? It's not like today they're going to get put in a psychiatric facility and get tortured, but that is where we're coming from, right? And so now, okay, take that information, take that of dealt with issues of mental health and now put it in a, in a culture, the elite athlete community, that their job is to perform. Okay. There is a performance entity to every piece of being a college or pro athlete. Okay. And so the stakes are very, very high. And you know, what, what has happened is now, okay. We've not only taken this like inherent fear of just like general anxiety of like speaking up about mental health, but now we're in this place where like, Oh, like now I, as a human have to compete, I've got to win. And if I don't, I'm a loser. Right. And so now we've added this like whole nother chunk of the equation. All right. That just literally, literally sets elite athletes up to, to fail in my opinion. Um, and, and to struggle and to struggle silently. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you, you look at it today and you're like, yeah, no wonder, no wonder we've got such an issue, um, uh, talking about mental health. Yeah. The, the well, yeah, I mean, the one in five um, statistic that you mentioned, and you said it's when I've been scratching the surface, I mean, that, that couldn't be any more spot on. Mm -hmm. um, like Flo and I have talked about it. I think we might've mentioned it on previous episodes, but just about how, you know, I've first found out about other people by joking about it myself. Like I'm very like open with it. Like I'll like, joke with some buddies and stuff like that. And like, they'll kind of be like, Oh, like, no way. Like by me mentioning that I kind of suffered from something, it kind of opened the door for them to feel more comfortable. Yeah. And then this yeah. happened over an, over, you know, a, a time period here. And I was, I told, I started to realize that like, it's almost as if you don't have something going on. You're, you're the outlier. I feel like there's more people yeah, that have, yeah. that have <laughs> like, I mean, it, in the year 2020, absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But I mean, I just feel like it's not scratching the surface is just understatement. I think like there's majority of athletes out there have something going on and people regardless. So, yeah. um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point that you brought up, but like the, you know, the, um, the system that it is, it's kind of setting up to fail. And, um, yeah, it, it is a lot of pressure, which is something we always talk about. Um, it, there's pressures from every single angle from, you know, expectations to perform athletically, academically, and then, you know, you have social lives and, you know, that's a whole yeah. other issue that everyone's just trying to juggle. And that's why it's just, it can be overwhelming. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, that's why we talk about how it's okay to not be okay because it's, it's okay to, you know, have these feelings because it's, they're completely normal with, with how much we have to deal with. Yeah. Um, and then, so you talked about how you're big on, um, one of the things you practice and that you, you know, try and teach is, or that you do teach is about meditation and mindfulness. So I want to talk yeah. about that and, um, dive into that specifically. Um, I think mindfulness is kind of a word that gets dropped a lot. Um, it's a buzzword, but yeah. I want to hear it from the professional source. What is mindfulness? Cause I think yeah. let's just set the record straight here. Yeah. So, um, the, the working definition that I use comes from a guy um, named John Kabat-Zinn um, that uh, he's really kind of regarded as like the guy that brought mainstream mindfulness to the United States, okay? Um, so it is an old um, Eastern Buddhist and Hindu, um, you know, practice that really means um, that we are paying attention, um, but it's in a very particular way. So most people associate mindfulness with like, okay, like someone was going to ask you simply like to tie your shoe mindfully, right? Like we would know that that's like, oh, okay, like pay attention, right? But there, it, there's, a, there's another layer to it. So it's kind of like with the intention to very much in the here and now, so in the present moment, really be with, all right, and understand our experience, but do it without judgment. And that is the piece that people really don't understand. So it is this very um, friendly, more curiosity than judgment um, point of view. And the reason for that is because um, we live with so much negativity. Um, so our brains are literally wired to work against us. Um, you know, it, science will say that you've got any, anywhere from like 35,000 to 70,000 thoughts in a day. Okay. But 75% is going to be negative, right? It's going to be that inner critic. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be bias. Um, and that's something you're working with every day. Um, and that is, and has been designed, um, with a good intent, right? So, Let's take it back to cavemen era, okay? So, you know, when, we're, when we as a human species were cavemen, we needed to be on edge, right? It was better for our brains to assume that there was a tiger behind a rock than take a chance and die, right? And so we needed that kind of more skeptical, like always on edge, but what people don't realize is that the brain, it works on a feedback loop. So the, the external world shapes our brain, our brain and our minds have thoughts about that, which then affects how we perceive the world. And then the cycle starts again. And so you have to think about it. Well, if, okay, as cavemen, they were always kind of thinking that there's a tiger behind the rock, what's going to happen, right? They're going to automatically be on a more and start to be on a more kind of on edge negative feedback loop. The problem is that carries through generations. And so, you know, we have a negativity bias. And so we've got to really, you know, and, it, and especially for an athlete, it is very, I mean, they, we live in the inner critic, right? 
And that typically follows us off the field and into our day-to-day -day life, okay? And so we constantly walk around with somewhat of a negative lens. And so mindfulness and is, you know, a quality that you can be, right? You can be mindful, but it is also something that you can train. So you can train yourself to be more mindful. Um, and so what we know is that with this type of training, um, we can absolutely physiologically change the brain. We can literally rewire our brain so that they start to work more for us, less against us. Um, and so that is um, very much what I do with athletes. Um, and, you know, the reason for that is because I really have seen and saw the, the transformation in my own life um, and just being able to, um, you know, live in a space where you're not as controlled by your thoughts and you, you have an understanding of what's going on up here so that you can rework your brain. Um, and so that is what I do. Does that help explain mindfulness? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. No, definitely. How do you, so what, what are some of the ways that you, um, teach that rewiring? How do you go about re rewiring is met? I mean, I'm assuming that meditation would be one of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've read that, um, nine minutes, meditation for nine minutes on a day-to-day -day basis over a 30 day span. It's the, I mean, the, the minute mark of a ticker where you start to see, uh, where the effects of meditation work is the nine minute mark. And when you do it every day for 30 days at the 30 day mark is where you start seeing, um, the, I guess, tangible benefits. And from what I understand, there's a development of gray matter in the brain, which then has many long lasting um, psychological and even physical benefits that again, I, I believe I got this information from um, Headspace. I have, I use the app Headspace yeah. to kind of throw some um, statistics there and um, read a book a couple years back. Can't remember the name, but it was, those were the statistics that they had dropped. And um, is that factual or if you can just talk more about meditation and the effects of that and how yeah, you know, the yeah, rewiring right. aspect. Totally. So yeah, I mean, I think many people come into this conversation and they think that mindfulness and meditation are the same thing and they're not. Um, so um, mindfulness, think of this as like the overarching like quality slash theme uh, of, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And meditation is one way to do that. Um, one way that I teach it. But there's also just many active, more active mindfulness practices you can do. And then there's yoga, which is another way that I, I um, work with athletes through and how I teach mindfulness. So um, meditation, um, I, I don't believe that you, you, it's the nine minute mark um, that is, um, you know, that you've got to meditate for nine minutes for 30 days. Um, you know, uh, I come from a lineage of uh, teachers in a school of thought that is one minute counts. Um, you know, if you're setting aside one minute, um, and, and honestly, I started meditating when I met, I could only sit for, I mean, when I started, I was in such a bad place. I could literally only sit for about 45 seconds to a minute. Um, but what the, what happens and how the brain works is that it starts to pick up on things, right? So if you sit for a minute for a week, okay, that minute is going to get easier, right? It's just like any time that I talk about changing the brain and meditation, it just put yourself in a weight room and it's the equivalent of trying to build strength in the weight room, right? It's like, it, like 
picking up, nobody just picks up 50 pound dumbbells and it's like, I'm going to bicep curl these eight times. Like nobody would do that. Right. <laughs> like, um, unless you're stupid, um, you know, they pick up 10 pounds and they do three sets of 15 for two weeks and then they bump up and they're like, okay, now I'm going to do, I don't know, three sets of eight. Right. And they, they there's a, there's a method to the madness and how you work up to that. Right. It's the same thing here. And so, yeah, I mean, my meditation journey was like, I did like one minute for a week and I was like, okay, two minutes. And then I was like, okay, if I can do two minutes, I can do five minutes. Um, and the, so then I did five minutes. I mean, I, I meditate for, um, you know, at least two rounds of 20 minutes a day now. Um, so, you know, your brain will start to pick up on that and will almost start. I mean, my, like I, I physiologically know when I need to like sit and meditate, like it starts to crave it. Um, and so I, I don't believe I would never, never tell an athlete that I'm just starting to work with. You got to go nine minutes. Never. I don't ever start anyone on a, on a meditation journey, um, on anything more than two minutes. Um, because, um, and, and part of my work in this, and I think why my work has taken off with a lot of the teams and the athletes that I do work with is because I, I also believe that we have to make this accessible to the 21st century athlete. We have to, or else they're, they're never going to want to, right? Like what athlete comes and says, hmm, yeah, I really want to go sit in a dark corner for 20 minutes with my eyes closed and just breathe. No one, no one in their right mind does, right? Like they just don't. Um, now, okay, can you get an athlete to sit for two minutes? Absolutely, right? I always make the bargain, take it out of your Instagram time, right? Like, I mean, how, how much mindless scrolling do we do on Instagram, right? You can take two minutes out of your day, right? That two minutes is going to start to bleed to five minutes. Um, you know, that five minutes is going to start to bleed to 10 minutes. Um, and so I don't, again, I don't ever start anyone out on something more than two or three minutes. Um, now, do I believe that it is something that you have to do daily and you have to stick to it? Yes. Okay. Um, that is, and, and science shows that, yes, it has to be, uh, again, it's the same thing as like physical training, right? Nobody goes out and like, runs a mile. And then like three weeks later, after not doing anything is like, I'm going to go run that same mile and get that same time. Right. Like, no, right. You have to, the, the training element has to be there. Um, and so, yes, it, it, it is something that I very much am like, you, you got to make a daily habit of this. Um, because that is what the, the brain loves habits. The brain loves patterns. Okay. Um, you know, think of it this way, like the stuff that you think about a lot and you like, and it lights your, your, your soul on fire. Think of those neural pathways as like a six lane highway. Okay. They're freaking strong. Right. And those cars are moving on those neural pathways. Okay. The, st the, the thoughts that are like brand new and just coming into our brain, they're like a two road highway. And so what I tell people is that you've got to start to make the habit of meditation that six lane highway. <laughs> like you just do, right? Like, so, you know, for me, it's like, I know every single morning when I get up, okay, I go get water. I go start my coffee. I go sit on the couch, meditate at least 10 minutes. Okay. Depending on how crazy my morning is. Sometimes I sit for 20 minutes, sometimes 30. Okay. Every single, every single night I get in bed. Okay. I, I do bring my phone with me cause I, I like to, um, I use an app to meditate. 
um, last 15 minutes before I kind of transition into, you know, if I'm going to read or do whatever, like I'm meditating. Right. And so I very much like uh, help players um, create uh, a schedule with this, right? It, it very much is, you got to be diligent with it um, because that's what the brain picks up on. So, um, you know, your facts and I, at what you stated, yeah, there's some, it's yes and no, right? Um, you know, I think there's, there's also been studies that have shown, you know, that people go, that go into like intensive um, meditation, um, you know, retreats or seminars. I mean, they're seeing improvements in four weeks. So, you know, it just, it, it's, there's, and part of the issue is that we need more research. We need more studies done on it, but um, all in all, you're, you're on the right track with that. You said you had an experience with a, a Buddhist monk, I believe that he was yeah. a Buddhist monk, correct? What was that experience like? And what exactly did you learn from him? Yeah. So his name is, um, Sean Fargo. Um, so yeah, he was a Buddhist monk. He was in monastery and, um, came out, um, left, left that world to, to come and teach teachers. Um, so he teaches people, um, like me that want to teach mindfulness meditation, but, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, um, you know, whether they have yoga certifications or whatever, they move in this space, um, and they, they may not really know what they're doing. Um, and so what I'll say is this, um, and I think this ties very nicely into mental health is that what we have to realize is that mental health and well-being is on a spectrum, right? And so the far end of one side of that spectrum is like diagnosable, like things are actually like chemically wrong in the brain and that's okay. Like there's, you know, right? We're all, we're all born to, you know, exactly what we're supposed to be, right? So that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is just like dealing with the shit that happens in life, right? That's still mental health and well-being, right? And so what I will say is that, um, you know, people that move in this space need to be very, very careful because there are people in the world that don't need to be meditating right now. Absolutely. I'm a, I am a mindfulness meditation teacher and there are people in the world that shouldn't be meditating because mentally they are not in a well enough space to, to be doing these practices, you know, really where they need to be is in therapy or they need to be working, you know, so, so you have to be really, really careful. I mean, we're, we're talking about the mind here. Um, and so, you know, my, I, I did, I, I did a certification. I studied with Sean, um, and, uh, it was, uh, you know, almost a year long process and, you know, you read a lot of books and you spend a lot of time meditating and you spend a lot of time talking and really processing through things. And then I worked with him to really develop the program that I, teach, uh, and now use with my athletes. So I've developed, um, uh, kind of a, a pretty robust kind of like athlete specific, um, mindfulness and meditation programming. Um, that is, you know, what I do with, um, a lot of the college teams that I work with and, uh, did with some of the, uh, PLL players this summer. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what, um, I did and yeah, learned, learned a ton. Um, but honestly, like, a lot of this work and a lot of this exploration you learn from practicing, right? Um, you can't be in this work if you're not going to do the work yourself. Um, and so a lot of it is just me 
me on a, on a yoga mat, on a, you know, meditation cushion, um, you know, really diving into, um, you know, I, I love, genuinely love this work because it keeps me honest. Um, and I learn just as much, um, from my own sessions. I mean, sometimes it's, it's hilarious and it happens more often than not when I plan a session for a team or an athlete and, you know, I get to the end of it and I'm like, oh man, I should have recorded myself so I could use that for me. Um, and, and so it really is one of those like mo just most fulfilling, um, you know, kind of careers, paths, professions, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, again, you, you just learn a ton from doing the work yourself. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because Danny and I have both said that doing this has been so helpful and yeah. beneficial for the both of us to the point where every, after every episode we do, we're both just like, Oh wow. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't know that. Didn't think I could feel like this or can't believe someone else has the exact same feeling or yeah. wow, I'm going to try their breathing exercises or I'm going to try journaling. And, um, it's just kind of crazy how it all ties in everyone. Like the mind's so powerful. So powerful. But to think that doing something every day, but then you do it with somebody else can be so beneficial. You learn something about yourself. And, you know, Danny and I have just gone back and forth about, we, we talk after every episode, we just stay on. It's just, it's like, oh, Wow. I know. Tower, like cra like crazy stuff. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Cool. I mean, uh, I'd like to quickly um, circle back as well, if you feel comfortable, of course, um, just kind of talking about sort of your journey with your own personal mental health and, you know, kind of when that started and, um, you know, your exp experience, you know, with getting help and um, kind of where you're at now and some of the things that worked for you and helping you overcome that and, you know, um, it's obviously, it's always a work in progress, which is something that both Flo and I talked about, you know, coming to grips with that. It's going to be something that we're going to have to continuously deal with. And, you know, a lot of people need to understand that. And, um, you know, the work just doesn't stop when you're feeling healthy for a bit, you know, it's going yeah. to keep working. So if you don't mind, just kind of talk about, you know, your experience and, um, you know, some of the triggers and some of the ways you cope and kind of what that, uh, what that was like. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's, yeah, you make a really good point. It's, um, you know, it, it's something that, um, you know, I kind of equate it to like the maintenance work for an athlete, right? Like foam rolling, stretching, mobility stuff, right? Like that stuff that like, especially as you get older, um, you know, especially for some of the, the, the pro guys that, and gals that I work with, like that becomes staple in your routine. Um, and so I really think of a lot of like this mental health and well-being as like, these are staples in your routine. Um, and so that's why I'm a really big advocate of like, look, you don't have to be struggling to work on your brain, like quite the opposite. Um, you know, you can actually be in a really great place and still practice mindfulness and meditation and yoga. Um, and again, that's why I'm like, yeah, these definitely aren't things that you can kind of afford to skip out on. Um, and I, I would say that, especially in my life, like I definitely notice a difference when like I slack off my routine um, and, and, and I'm not doing the things that I need to be doing. Um, and it kind of shoves me to, to get my, my butt back in gear. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think my own journey has been, um, it's been a long one. I think it's been a, um, one that I really wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, you know, I, I from a very young age, I mean, I like 
four or five, um, like really little, um, I always had, and, you know, I think it's one of those where, again, it's just like, it's, it's an awareness thing, um, and an education thing. And just kind of like, I think our parents, I don't know how old you guys are, but like, my parents come from a generation where like, they just didn't talk about that stuff. And like, it wasn't something that, um, you know, they really paid attention to. And so, um, you know, I think what we now know is that I think all along I had some pretty big anxiety issues, um, and kind of what they thought were just like temper tantrums, probably panic attacks. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think my biggest thing was just not having ways to cope. Um, and I'll be the first one to admit that, you know, I think my family just like, we're just not talkers, um, uh, about this type of stuff. Like we're, we're super tight and we're close and like through my own mental health journey, we've come a really long ways, but like emotion is not, um, you know, and this is why I'm such a like big believer in, education about this and awareness. Um, cause I think emotional intelligence plays a big piece. Like we just didn't, we didn't talk about emotions. It was really hard. Um, and so, you know, I think what that does is especially when you're not really sure of what's going on between your own ears, it's like, well, what happens? You get more anxious and you get more stressed and you get more depressed. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, having a dad that was a sports psychologist was tough. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I became a really, so actually my first sport was swimming. Um, so I was a, a year round swimmer. Um, I mean, very, very competitive swimmer, um, and, uh, went to the junior Olympics and you were really just kind of like, um, almost just like hit my limit at like the age of like 12. Um, because, uh, you know, especially in swimming, you're literally in your own head, right. When you're in the pool that much. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just cracked, I, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And that's when I kind of like switched over to soccer, which was like, okay, more of a team sport. But then like my personality is like, okay, if I'm, I mean, if I'm going to do something like I'm going to, I'm going to freaking do it. Right. I'm going to do it well. And I'm going to be the best. Um, and that's just my, that, that's just always been kind of my, my head, um, which, you know, is fine. Um, if you uh, understand how to manage that. Right. Um, and yeah, so I started self mutilating when I was in high school, just as a way to kind of, um, deal with things. And, you know, um, that ended up, um, becoming a, a first attempt at suicide when I was in a junior in high school. Um, and so I didn't finish my junior year of high school. Um, I was, my parents put me in inpatient care. Um, and I, I did really well there. Um, I went to a really great facility, um, and got really stable on meds and, and felt really good and strong and came out of there. And, um, you know, I was honestly like, truly, I, I, I was doing okay. Um, you know, I think I always struggled with like the run of the mill anxiety stuff and performance stuff. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I was stable for the first time. Um, and then my kind of sophomore year of college is when I, and, and, and all the while had been in therapy and working with a therapist, um, that I loved and had a great relationship with. Um, my sophomore year is probably when I really kind of got bad again. Um, and again, it was one of those where like, we just didn't talk about stuff. Um, we dealt with uh, as a team in general, we dealt with stuff in some really unhealthy ways. Um, just 
you know, a lot of, a lot of partying, too much drinking, too, too much, um, just not, not dealing with things, uh, healthily. Okay. Um, and that just really starts to take a toll on your body physically as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think for the next, like, you know, kind of graduating college and those early years of college coaching, just like, again, I think it's one of those where like, I would go on these bouts of like, okay, I'd be okay. I'd be okay. And then things would start to go South because I didn't really have a hold on my mind and I didn't have things in place to keep me in check. And so I'd plummet. And then that would like give me a reality check and be like, okay, it's like time, time to, you know, like get healthy again, like change meds, find a new therapist, da da da. And so I think it's just like an all too common pattern of like, okay, well we have to hit rock bottom in order to like figure it out. Right. Um, and then, um, and then I really hit rock bottom. Um, and then I, I spent about a full year living from panic attack to panic attack. Um, and these were like, you know, I mean, dropping to the floor, uh, dry heaving vomit. I mean, I'd black out. Um, uh, you know, I couldn't leave my house. It was, it was really bad. I'd lost like 12 pounds in two weeks. Um, and like, I'm, I'm five eleven. like I, I, and I'm pretty tall. And like right now I'm like a 155 pounds. Like I don't have 12 pounds to lose. Right. Um, it was not good. Um, and yeah, so finally just like landed myself in, in, inpatient and that was a pretty bad, um, I was just like in generic inpatient, like didn't, um, because I had landed in the hospital in panic, um, basically there's a lot of laws around it, but like you basically lose your rights. Um, and so they just kind of put you in a facility and, um, yeah, it was really bad. It was really scary. Um, I was in there with, um, people that, I mean, were detoxing and I mean, that's, a, that's a really, really freaking scary thing, uh, to watch somebody detox off, um, heroin. And I mean, some like serious, serious drugs, like, cause not only are you like mentally not there, but like physically you're not well. I mean, it was like, it was definitely one of the scariest experiences I've, I've ever lived through and I hopefully will ever live through. Um, but I, I really like, I, I made it out alive and like, I, I moved back home for a little bit with my parents and like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's just something that was like, start meditating. I don't know what's there, but like get on a yoga mat. And, um, you know, I think my practice has really, um, again, taken, taken root from this idea of like, I just have, I have to get control. Um, and you know, I think the reality is, is that we actually have more control than we think we do, but we've got to get ourselves there. Right. Um, you know, there, there's a famous quote that I love, which is, um, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies, um, you know, our, our choice. Um, and what people don't know is that like, there, there is a choice, um, in how you respond and react and think certain things. Um, and there's, again, there's, some caveats and some science in there, but the reality is that we do have a lot more power than we think we do. Um, we've just got to train our brain to, to get to the point where we have that power. Um, and so that's really kind of like what I was on a mission to do. Um, and really I've always been kind of a kid that like, um, you know, when I find stuff that interests me and, um, kind of excites me. Like I, I dive in head first and, um, 
yeah, I just, you know, I mean, I was in a yoga studio on a yoga mat every single day. Um, I mean, I ordered like 20 books off Amazon and was just like reading everything I could. Um, you know, I just really dove headfirst into the process and learning. And, you know, I think as I did that, I really started to realize like, oh my gosh, like this is, um, you know, this, this is it. Um, and I, I think it was, um, I've actually got a, a blog post coming out about this, but um, it must have been like two two months into my journey, and I came across a um, a quote that's pretty like famous like Buddhist quote, but um, it says you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think I had had this idea in my head that like, oh, okay, well, what I'm trying to do here is just cure myself of my anxiety and my panic and my bouts of depression, right? Like I just want them to go away. And I had this like very light bulb moment that like finally hit me when I read this quote that I was like, holy shit, it's not going to go away. It's never going to go away. Like that's not the point. The point is to learn how to navigate. And so, you know, this kind of wraps it around to what you were saying and that like, look, this is what I tell, tell, you know, my athletes and, people that ask, they're like, Oh my gosh, you're like a different person. Like, how did you cure yourself? I'm like, I didn't cure myself. I still wake up and have anxiety. I still wake up and have days where I feel the shit that I've always felt. Right. But I have trained my brain and I have put and implemented tools and skills into my life where I don't, I don't crumple. Right. And so what I've done is I've learned how to navigate it and, and done it really freaking well. Um, and so it's, it's say that like, y'all, we're not going to, I mean, look at the world right now. Like you can't stop what is out there. Right. And like the reality is, is that at the end of the day, like there are some thought patterns that like, Hey, we're just always going to have to deal with like a, a very common one for me is that like, I'm just not good enough. Right. Like I have this common, like just kind of running real of like that. I'm that I haven't done enough in life, that I'm not worthy enough, right? And like, who knows where that comes from or like what that is about? Like, what does that even mean? Like good enough for what? I don't know. Like I can rationally like talk about this, right? But the brain is the brain. And like for the reality is, is that like that's a loop that will always be with me probably. And I'll always have to deal with. Now, I sure as hell quiet the crap out of it now, right? And I know how to manage it and work with it and acknowledge it, but also push it to the side. Right. And that is, that is the power of training the brain. You can literally train yourself to get to that place in your life. Um, and so that's what I'm just like such a big advocate of. And I really believe that like, I'm a living and breathing example of it, but I've also had many, many athletes come back, turn around and in a very short amount of time, be like, holy shit, like there's something here. Um, and, and that's because you really are like, it's, this is not, you know, we're out of the phase where like this, this meditation and like yoga myth is like, you know, we're, we're, you know, doing something for the mind body and whatever. No, there's actually science that proves that this literally changes your brain. Um, and so that's why a lot of like, when I, talk to coaches and to athletes and like, it's, it is a no brainer, right? Um, it's the equivalent of look, um, you know, if there is a, uh, a drill, okay. That specifically hits on a deficiency for you as a player. Okay. 
Um, if you as a player knew you needed to work on that, okay, and you wanted to get to the highest level, what would you go do? You'd go out and you'd do that drill, right? I mean, I, there's not many elite athletes that would question that, right? Like they'd go out and do the drill. And even if they got better at it, they'd probably still be doing it just to fine tune and to hone in. And you can always get a little bit better, right? It is the exact same with the brain. It is the exact same. There is something, there is something that has been proven by science that can literally transform your brain to work more efficiently. Yet there is still so much pushback in the elite athlete community on it. And so that is really kind of like where I come in and put my fist down. It's where a lot of my work is. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I think it's just like the biggest thing you said is finding what works for you. Um, I think we kind of think that like, you know, working with the brain and um, dealing with mental health is like a one size fits all to not, you have to figure out what is yeah. going to work for you. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. It's, it's being, you know, taking a hard look and realizing like what has worked in the past. What are some things that you need to do that, that like you said, need to be staples in your routine that are going to get your, you know, get you in the right frame of mind, so to speak, and kind of help quiet that background noise. And I think, um, so yeah, it's not a one size fits all type of thing. And um, again, to, to backtrack what you said about some of the things that you've dealt with, like the, the dry heaving and blacking out and being on all fours. Like I know that experience all too well. And um, yep. there's like parts of my life that I literally cannot remember because like, it was just such a, like Blurry. a disgusting place to be in. Like yeah. that's the only way I can describe it as a disgusting place to be in. Like last year specifically, I came into the season at like 215 pounds. And at one point I was like 182 pounds, you know, like yeah. two hours of sleep for a month every night. Like it was just, it's, it's really, it's hard to be in a place like that. So, um, you know, and we appreciate you being open, you know, with, with you know, speaking about that stuff. Cause I know it's not easy to talk about that, but I know there's a lot of people who do go through things like that and think that they are alone and think that they're quote unquote crazy. That was kind of the thought process that I kind of had was I'm, I'm, yeah. cr I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Like I can't tell yeah. anybody about this because I'm going to be like in a straight jacket. That was my thought process. I can't tell anybody cause I'm going to be in a straight jacket. And like yeah. that would even provoke even more fear and like make me cry and like make me like puke and be like, having even more anxiety was like the fact that I was crazy, thinking that I was crazy. And um, yeah, that's a very uh, real experience that a lot of people have. And it's tough, um, especially with sports when you identify your whole life in that sort of, in that, in that sport or in that world. Yeah. And then to kind of see for me, like my experience was like, maybe I was getting phased out of sports and maybe I wasn't going to be on the trajectory that I wanted to. That was like, a life altering experience that I could not come to grips with. And it was tough to see how that was going to go. And um, yeah, it's still like, it's hard. It's hard. I know a lot of athletes can go through that and um, yeah, no, just, yeah, it's uh, we appreciate, you know, saying that and being open and vulnerable about saying that. So um, yeah, no, likewise. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, thank you for, for sharing just a little bit about your experience as well. I think it's, you know, so much of this also is, um, you know, and, and for me, I really resonate with um, what you're saying about like, 
you know, in your head, then you start to internalize that, like, you're crazy. Like there is something wrong with me. Right. Um, and I think so much is, is a simple, um, fix of language. And so a lot of, and actually kind of like this next push of, so I, I, um, finish my quarter. So I'm on the quarter system with school and I finish on the 11th and then I have two months off. Um, and kind of, you know, again, I, I really love developing programming. Um, and so this kind of next phase of programming is all about like, how do we become more mindful about these conversations we have and the language we use regarding mental health and our experiences, right? Um, because if you think about it, like, the word crazy, and again, this gets back to what I was saying about the stigma and the history of like how we've dealt with mental health, right? Like crazy is a, it's an, it has a negative connotation to it. Um, yet, um, you know, so many of us who have struggled with mental health, that's how we feel. And that's how we've been categorized. And that's, you know, what we feel like everybody else is seeing and thinking, right? Um, whereas if we just took the time and we had the knowledge to transition that thought of, hmm, I'm, I'm experiencing something very real and it's really tough, right? Replace that with crazy and it totally changes your experience. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if I, in those moments, just had the ability to say, breathe, you know, I'm experiencing something really real. These are all, all emotion is valid. Everything you feel and think is, is real. Right. Um, and so we have to, and so much of, I think mental health is this like devaluing, is that even a word? Devaluing, devaluing people's experience. Right. And the reality is, is that like, Emotion is emotion. Whatever you feel is valid. And so replacing that language of like, I'm crazy. This is wrong. Something's wrong with me with like, this is valid and it's really tough and it really sucks. Um, can drastically change how we perceive mental health, how we ourselves perceive our own mental health and how we speak about it with others. Um, I think is a really big and, and one of the, um, you know, I actually am giving a, I'm giving a talk on Tuesday about this. And I really think a, you know, a very proactive yet simple approach to tackling mental health and specifically in the Iliathlon community is this idea of language. And what is the language we're using to, to talk about um, both what, what, what I'm feeling inside, but also with other people. I think it's massive. I think it's really big. It's a really big piece of the puzzle. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I also am just a, a big believer in shared experience. I think it's something that, um, you know, connects people. I think it uh, allows us to see that we're not alone, um, right? I mean, again, it's, you know, that if you, if you really go back to the data and the facts on this, right? And I always, I, I use this and I think it's really useful, especially in a team setting, um, to have a, a team like an athletic team say like, look around, right? If I'm telling you that the statistic, okay, is that one in five people, roughly one in four college athletes, okay, will struggle with some form of mental health, look around. Because the reality is, is that, I mean, sheesh, I'm a team of 20 people, 
four people, right, on your team that are that are likely struggling, and that's probably on the conservative side, okay? Um, and so, you know, you, you have to realize that, like, gosh, we're not alone in this, yet time after time we choose, um, and, you know, I shouldn't say we choose, that's, that's bad language. Um, see, I even catch myself. Um, you know, it's, it's we are in a position where we feel like we're alone and we have to deal with it alone. Yeah. That's scary. <laughs> That's a scary place to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it is really scary. Um, it's terrifying. Um, but, yeah. And you also don't ever know what somebody else's support system is, right? So, I mean, I was really lucky in that my family was very in tune to what was going on, even though I was really struggling um, and knew exactly what I needed and was like, I mean, dropped everything to help me. But that's pretty rare. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, not Seriously. everybody has that. Um, and so you just don't like, you never know what, uh, again, you never know what somebody's dealing with. So. That's, uh, somebody told me this, uh, well, I've heard it before, but they really stressed it the other day. Um, they said mental illness has no cast, which, yeah. um, you know, Obviously, it's, you know, always treat people kindly just because you never know what they're going through. But hearing mental illness has no cast was just um, very informing, I guess you could yeah. say. But, um, you know, all the episodes we've had um, have been people telling their story and whatnot. But tonight was probably the most informing um, statistically mm -hmm. with you, but also having you tell your story was um you know, very grateful for that. So, um, thank you for that. And then yeah, thank absolutely. You for, um, you know, teaching me as much as you did because, you know, all those stats and different, um, you know, what, even little things like, you know, you're not going to start somebody with nine minutes of meditation. Um, just something like that. Cause I just started uh, box breathing. Yeah. And, um, you know, my attention span is like a little kid. I see a butterfly or something. I'm going after it. Um, yeah. But, um, Very cool. Mine is yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but, um, I, I appreciate you coming on, um, not only helping other people, but to tell your story, um, you know, very grateful for that. So thank you again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, the, the phrase I, I like your, for, I, I like that phrase. I have not heard that, but, um, you know, I, I use, you know, mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't. Yeah, right. Seriously. Um, and so it's that, it's that idea that like, you can absolutely be mentally tough and struggle with mental health issues, right? It doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a really, that's a really important concept to, to grasp. Um, it just, you know, people that have it all together sometimes don't have it all together. So yeah. Um, and absolutely, again, I, I'm a huge, um, you know, I, I really believe in uh, the power of sharing, sharing stories. Um, so yeah, I always try to, um, I mean, I'm pretty darn, I mean, it's my, my complete kind of story is on the internet anyway. So any, anyone could read about it, but um, I believe that's needed. I think we need more of that. Um, I think we need to maybe not normalize. I wouldn't ever say that we need to normalize my experience. Right. I would never, again, I would never wish what I've been through on someone else, but I think we need to norm normalize the, the sharing component and the conversation about it. Um, so, so absolutely my pleasure. Awesome. Well, um, we don't want to take up too much of your time. So thank you again for coming on for those listening. Um, how could they get in touch with you? And you said you have a blog, if, you know, um, maybe just if you 
prefer to drop your social media and um, where they can read your blog and some other you know, information they can get from you. Totally. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so, you know, probably the, the most central location for anything and everything blog and everything is just uh, my business. So parent wellness and performance.com. Um, and then on every social media outlet, so Twitter, Instagram, um, uh, the, the Instagram handle for my business is parent wellness and performance. I think there's an and in there. Um, <laughs> sad that I don't know that one. Um, and my personal is Emily Larson P. Um, and I do use, um, social media as a way to put out content and to have conversation. And so, yeah, I mean, people can find me there. And then I'm also on Twitter, um, Perrin, um, W N P. Um, so yeah, that's all my, um, and feel free. I'm, I can, um, uh, send you guys that as well if you want to put out, but yeah, pretty, pretty easy to find. Perfect. Yeah. We'll, we'll tag in everything as well. So um, they'll see it right there for those who are on Instagram and Twitter, but, um, for those listening, that's where you can find her and get a hold of her. So, um, again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on and chat with you and, um, thank you for being open as well. And you know, this is very informative. It's going to help out a lot of people. So, um, thank you again. Ah, oh, pleasure thank is you. mine. Thank you guys for uh, all the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great, uh, have a great evening. Thanks. You too, guys.